Well, it's great to see everybody today. Like uh, Bevan said, my name's Elliot. I'm the Connection Pastor here, and we are starting this new series called Locally Grown, and I, for one, am really excited about this series for a few different reasons. One of them being, uh, I come from a long line of farmers. <laughs> Actually, my family still owns some land back in Kansas, and my uncle, who's running that property, he's the fifth generation in our family to farm that land. So for me, growing up as a kid, my dad had moved away. He was the oldest son. He had moved away, and um, he raised us in the city. But what he would do over the summer is him and my mom would take me and my siblings back to the farm every summer to help with the wheat harvest. And I remember as a kid, that was always a highlight of my summer. It was something that we really looked forward to. I remember walking through the grain fields with my grandfather, who was running the farm at the time, and he would, he would pull a, a head of wheat off the stalk, and he would roll it together, and he would explain to us how you've got to separate the chaff from the grain, and then he would blow on it, and the chaff would fly away, and he would give us these lessons about life and how farming worked. And I remember riding along in the combine as it collected all the grain and then getting in the grain truck and taking it to the co-op where you drop all the grain off and you get your money for it. And I remember with my grandma helping her take food to all the different workers, to my dad and my uncle and my grandpa, and just kind of helping make sure that they had something to eat and they had something to drink so that they could continue to work on the project of bringing in the harvest. And if you've ever participated in anything like that, you know it's a ton of work. And there's this big push, all hands on deck, everybody coming together to get the job done. And so for me as a kid, I honestly wasn't a lot of help when I was little. I mean, I usually just got in the way and the, the adults kind of humored us and put up with us. We weren't a ton of help, but for me, that was a highlight. That was a great experience to be a part of that harvest process and to be around the farm life and see what goes into it. And then because my dad came from a farm, farming was just kind of in his blood. And so my parents... When we were growing up, they always had a large vegetable garden in our backyard. They were always involved in growing food. And for me and my siblings, again, because we were, we were city kids, my parents would, part of the chores they would have us do is they would have us go out and work in the garden and help be a part of tending it and taking care of it and helping those vegetables grow. And what I learned in the process of coming from farmers and then being involved in this for a certain part of my life, I learned that there is something uniquely satisfying about growing food. There's just something about the process. There's something about preparing the soil and planting the seed and waiting and the mystery and the growth and the transformation that takes place from this small seed that you put in the ground to this big plant that produces something that nourishes and is delicious. And I learned that it's a process that it's, can be a very frustrating process. It's a challenging process. There's there's waiting and there's patience that's involved and there's all kinds of challenges that you enc encounter through the process that are outside of your control. And even if you've just, you know, for fun or as a science project tried to grow a tomato plant at home, you know that this process, it takes time and it can be slow and there's a lot of stuff that you can't control. But ultimately, this life, this work of farming and growing food, what I've learned about it is it's a work that's full of reward. And when Jesus was here on earth and he had his three-year public ministry and he traveled around and he taught, he would often explain to people how the gospel would spread. And the gospel is the good news of what God has done and how he can change a life. So Jesus would explain this, and as he explained how the gospel would spread, he would use agricultural illustrations. So he would start talking, and he would start talking about soil that needs to be cultivated. And he would talk about a seed that needs to be planted, and he would talk about the process of watering, and he would talk about the excitement and the reward that's a part of the harvest and everything that goes along with that. And now for you and me, 
we're not involved most likely in the food production process. I mean, I now get all my food at the grocery store. Somebody else has done the hard work and I go pay for what they've grown. You're probably in the same boat. But actually what's amazing is what Jesus does is he invites us to give our lives to a work that's even more rewarding and more satisfying than growing food. He invites us to engage in a process just like farming. There's there's preparation and there's mystery and growth and you get to witness transformation and you, you give your life to see something that seems like such a small investment and then you see it multiplied and it impacts many people. He invites us to give our lives to something that in the end will actually matter and count for something. To more than just giving our days to collecting a paycheck or going through the motions or having a good time, he invites us to give our lives to something that's going to last for all of eternity. He invites us to join him in this process of, of spreading the gospel, telling other people how they can enter into a restored relationship with him. And what he says about it, he says that that's a process, that if you spend your life doing this, you spend your days working on this, when you're old and you look back on what you've done, you'll look back with satisfaction because you'll know that what you invested in is meaningful. It was significant. It's worthwhile. It was worth doing. And Jesus invites all of us to be involved in this process. So today, and then for the next few weeks, we're going to explore this locally grown idea. And we're going to see how you and I, just like with growing food, we can be involved in a very similar process, the process of God changing lives. It's a process that takes work. It requires patience. There's there's effort, there's strategy involved in it. But in the end, ultimately, it is the most, wor- most worthwhile thing we could do with our lives. Before we dive into all that and we look at Jesus's agricultural illustrations where he paints this picture, we're going to start by asking two questions this morning. And these two questions are based on major shifts that we've seen take place in farming since the days of Jesus to today. And we're going to ask the question, okay, so if farming has shifted in that way, then does that impact how we tell other people about Jesus? So we're going to explore these and see how it impacts how we're involved in sharing the gospel. So the first question is this, whose job is it? Whose job is it? Is it the professional or the individual? Who is it that's been given the task of telling other people about Jesus? Is it people like me and Bevan who get up here on stage and we collect a paycheck doing this, or is it individuals? Is it all of us? Are we all supposed to be involved in this? Now, when it comes to farming, there have been some amazing advancements throughout history. Back in the time when Jesus was alive and when he walked the earth and taught, he was teaching in what's referred to as an agrarian society. And in an agrarian society, what that means is the majority of people made their living off agriculture. And even if you didn't work in agriculture, you still probably had a small piece of land and you had some livestock and you would raise food to take care of your own family. That's the culture and the society that Jesus lived in that he was speaking to. But over time, we've seen some major shifts. I mean, you and I, like I said, we, we go to the grocery store. We don't probably grow our own food. So what happened over time is one of the shifts that occurred is referred to as the agricultural revolution. It's part of the industrial revolution. As there was new technology and new machinery, they were able to increase the amount of produce that they could create. So they could make more and more and more food. They had new irrigation techniques. They had all these new fancy machines. Because of that, they needed less people to be involved in the process. So you saw this shift where societies, instead of the majority of people being involved in the farming process, all of a sudden it shifted from agrarian to industrialized societies. 
So now we have universities that give out degrees in stuff like agriculture. We have schools like UC Davis in Northern California who their mascot is the Aggies because they're an agriculture school. I mean, that's real creative, you know. They're famous for agriculture, so let's just call them the Aggies. Or Texas A&M, same thing. Their mascot's the Aggies. They're an agriculture school. So people can get degrees in this. What's happened is farming has shifted away from the individual, and because of industrialization, it now rests in the hands of, or of professionals. We've seen this shift from the individual to the professional when it comes to farming. Now, there's a very few people who are involved in this pro process, and they are the ones that produce the majority of the food that we eat. But when it comes to how the message about Jesus spreads and how people can enter into a relationship with him, it hasn't changed. Though I, what that means is the responsibility of sharing the gospel and telling other people about Jesus, it still rests on the individuals. It hasn't changed through industrialization. It's not something that we as individuals can outsource, can give away and have somebody else do and get involved in. See, as farming has industrialized and shifted to the professional, there have been a lot of benefits. I mean, now we can feed more people than we've ever been able to feed. Now the, the, the variety is greater than we've had. But one of the things that it's cost us in the industrialization and mass production process is it's cost us in quality. And that's why when you want quality fruit, where do you go? You go to the farmer's market. You go somewhere where it was locally grown, where that, that product, that produce, got individual personal attention through the growing process. We all know that's where you go for the good stuff. That's something that's lost in industrialization. When we talk about how the gospel spreads, we're not talking about products, we're talking about people's lives. And that means that the quality, that is incredibly important. The personal attention that's given, that can't be replaced. So yeah, I can get up here on a Sunday like this morning and I can talk to several hundred people through the course of three services. And that's great, and there can be some helpful information and some encouragement that's given. But the real personal individual help, I can't give that to everybody. I'm limited. That's why God gives the task to the individuals, because he knows that's really what it's going to take. It's not limited to the professional. His plan was never to industrialize or mass-produce change in people's lives. His plan has always been a locally grown plan, where the individuals who are following him are involved in the process and taking responsibility. There's an interesting passage that makes this point in the book of Acts, and it takes place shortly after Jesus' return to heaven. And Jesus, when he left, he gave this instruction to his followers. He said, hey, go, go tell people about me. Go help more people enter into a restored relationship with God. So Jesus leaves, and his followers, they took him seriously. So the message starts spreading, and more and more people are following Jesus. And the local authorities, they start to get kind of nervous. They're wondering, what in the world's going on? Who are these people? Who's this guy that they're following? There's all these events taking place. So they call in two of the prominent followers. They call him Peter and John. When they call him in, they're like, hey, explain to us what's going on. All this stuff, we've heard all these stories. Explain to us what's going on. How is it that you're doing this stuff? This is what Peter says in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. He says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. That is just such a great summary of what we believe. So what Peter says, he says, hey, hey there's, there's no one else to save us. Jesus is the one that came. He's the one that gave his life. He's the only one that salvation is found in. It's a great verse to memorize, just a great summary of what, it, what we believe as Christians. Then it says this in the passage, referring to the leaders. It says, when they, the leaders, when they saw the courage of Peter and John 
and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Now, I love this, and what I wonder about when I read this is how did the leaders know that Peter and John were unschooled? How did they know that? Did they ask them? Did they say, hey, what school did you guys go to? Did, did Peter talk funny? So people are like, he clearly has never been educated because of the way he talks. Did he use small words? He didn't use the big, fancy, eloquent, complex language that the educated... I mean, how did they know that they were unschooled? It, it says they were ordinary. Another way of saying that is they just weren't that impressive. So you, you think about that, and what this is saying about Peter and John is when the authorities looked at them, they saw two guys that weren't that smart and weren't that impressive. That's really flattering, isn't it? If you and I were going to recruit some people to lead a movement that would spread all the way around the world, we wouldn't recruit uneducated, ordinary people. But see, from the very beginning, Jesus' plan has not been to use paid professionals who are eloquent and explain it perfectly and devote their lives to studying these topics. That's not his plan. His plan is to use individuals, individuals who get involved with the people next to them and open their mouths and love and spread the word. That's always been his plan. It's never been, okay, well, once we get a little smarter, we can industrialize this and mass produce this, and then, hey, just, we'll, you know, we'll give it to the hands of a couple paid people and we're good to go. No, his plan has always been to use uneducated ordinary. I don't see an uneducated ordinary crowd, by the way, so I think we're doing pretty good. That's God's plan is to use individuals, individuals who join with him in the process of seeing other people enter into a relationship with God. Was this plan then? It's still his plan today. Another question, is the goal efficiency or effectiveness? What's our goal? What's our top consideration? Are we after the most efficient way to do things or are we after the most effective way? When it comes to farming, there have been a ton of advances and improvements in efficiency. I mean, the, you know, my, my uncle now, who he runs the farm, there's software that farmers can buy, and you can map out a field, and using GPS, you can determine, okay, I want a seed to be planted every few inches, and you can calculate exactly how everything's spread out. And then as you go through the process, and you, you know, they're pulling their tractor, and they've got everything behind them, the seed and the water and the fertilizer, then they've got these machines that based on the software, based on the GPS, it's perfectly placing the seeds, and then it'll place a seed, and then it'll drop a piece of fertilizer, and then it'll shoot it with some water. I mean, just, it's amazing how intricate this is and how efficient they are in the process. I mean, my, my, the farm that my family has, when my ancestors moved there back in the 1800s, when my great-great-great-grandpa took over that land and bought it, it was a small piece of land, and he farmed it with a handful of people. Now, over time and after, you know, decades, what's happened is that land has grown, and now they own about 20 times what they owned originally, and all of it's farmed by one guy. And if you think about it, farming has seen amazing advances in efficiency because of technology. Technology has really improved the efficiency of the farming and food production. And when you think about the spread of the gospel, technology has also benefited the spread of the gospel. I mean, we have videos that we can watch. We have audios that we can listen to. We have the internet. We have, we have speaker systems and microphones, and we can draw larger crowds than we ever have. There's a greater number of people that can be communicated to with a message. I mean, this morning, we're all benefiting from this audio system. 
If my voice wasn't being amplified, I would have lost it in second service if I had to yell for all three services. So we're benefiting from technology. It's a good thing. But when we consider how the message of Jesus spreads and how it's going to impact the life, our question is not, what's the most efficient way to do this? It's just not. Efficiency is not our primary motivation when it comes to the spread of the gospel and how we do it. And for us as Americans, that's challenging because we want everything to be fast and efficient. I mean, we created the microwave. We created Amazon Prime. We created fast food. I mean, so it's like, why can't we do that with the gospel? Why can't you just throw it in the microwave and push 60 seconds and then boom, finished product? You know, why can't you do that with somebody's life? Why can't you just, hey, I'm going to tell this person about Jesus and boom, all of a sudden, you know, two days delivery, brand new person. So that's all it's going to take. The reason is, it's because we're not dealing with products. We're dealing with the hearts of unique individual people. That's what Jesus is after. See, an essential part of mass producing anything is uniformity. If every product is the same, then mass produce it. Make it as efficient as possible. Go for it. But you can't do that when you're dealing with the human heart. Each one of us in this room, we're individuals and we're each unique. And our hearts are fickle and complex. And actually, the damage that sin has done to us is severe. It actually says that the damage done to our heart, our hearts are in a critical state. It says that the consequences for sin is death. So let me ask you, if you're having open heart surgery, do you want the surgeon to be efficient or effective? Do you want the guy who, hey, we're cutting costs and in and out in five minutes? No, you want the person who they're going to pay attention to detail and make sure that what needs to be done happens. You want the effective surgeon, not the efficient one. It's your life on the line. See, even with all the technology the church can use, God's love is what changes a heart. And the message of God's love is best delivered through a relationship. It's as his love is experienced through his people, as his people take his love and come alongside others, and in the nitty-gritty messiness of life, they just care for them. They put the goals and interests of others above their own. They inconvenience themselves for the benefit of others. They walk with them through the slow and painful processes of life. It says his people function as his messengers of his love. That's when change starts to happen. That's when a heart starts to soften. And the reality is, that's a slow process. You can't speed that up. And you also can't replace it. There's no replacement for a person experiencing God's love. So it's not an, is this the most efficient way? It's, it's what's effective. And the only thing that's effective is God, a person has to encounter God's love, and that happens through individual relationships. A verse on this is Acts 17, verse 26 and 27. It says this. It says, From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. What that's saying is where you and I live, the houses or neighborhoods or apartments we're in, that's no accident. There's something even bigger going on than the decisions that we made. That's what this is saying. Then it goes on, it says this, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. What does it mean that God is not far from any of us? Well, it's not a physical reference because God doesn't have a physical body like us, so he's not limited to the laws of physics. What that means is for you and me, we're just as close to God right now as we would be if we climbed up to the top of Everest. 
Or if we got in a submarine and went down to the depths of the Pacific, we would be just as close to God there. God is, he is everywhere. So this is not a physical reference to, you know, if you're in this location, you're far from God physically, or in this location, you're close to God physically. This is a relationship reference. It's saying that they're not far from entering into a relationship with him. And the number one way that people find God and enter into a relationship with him is through other people. So that's why he strategically placed you and me in the families that we're in. And that's why he strategically placed us in the businesses that we work in and the sports teams that we're a part of and the classrooms and the hospitals. And you just go on and on down the list. God has strategically placed us to be next to other people so that we can be the messengers, the conduits of his love into their lives so that then prayerfully as we, as we value them the way that God values them, and as we treat them the way that Jesus would treat them, prayerfully their hearts will start to soften as they experience his love. And then when we open our mouths, they'll make a decision to choose the new life that Jesus gives. That's how it works. That's the process. You and I each have been individually placed to be a part of that, to be a part of God's plan. So when we think of technology, technology can be very helpful. But there's just no substitute for love. So we're asking the question of how does the gospel spread? How do people enter into a relationship with Jesus? It's not in a question of what's the most efficient way to do this. It's, okay, how is this going to happen? What's the most effective approach? There's no substitute for love when it comes to people entering into a relationship with Jesus. One of Jesus' first followers is actually a really good example for us of what this could look like. He does something that we actually can, uh, can adopt and copy in our modern-day setting, which is really helpful. And what this individual understood is he understood that he personally had been given the task of telling others about Jesus. And he also understood that in order for that to happen, it required him to love people, to genuinely care for them. So this is what happens in Luke chapter 5. It says this. It says, starting in verse 27, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. Now, what do we know about this guy, Levi? Well, we know that his, he goes by another name, which is the name Matthew. He's the guy who wrote the book in the New Testament called Matthew, which is one of the four biographies about Jesus' life. So he's also referred to as Matthew. We know he's one of the 12 disciples. He's one of Jesus' 12 closest followers, one of the first ones to choose to follow Jesus. We also know that he's a tax collector. What that means is he was engaged in a pretty corrupt business practice, but he was worth a lot of money. So what Rome would do is when they would come in and they would conquer a nation or a a territory, just like they had conquered Israel, they would impose taxes. And what they would have happen is they wanted to get these taxes, and so instead of having their own people, the Romans collect the taxes, they would hire local citizens who knew kind of what everybody made and what they were worth. And these individual local people would start collecting the taxes. And because this was viewed as treason, I mean, you could imagine how hated these people are. You're not only, you've not only been conquered by this world superpower and you're an oppressed people, but now your neighbor is coming to you saying, hey, you need to pony up, you got to pay. So what they would do, what Rome would do for those individual tax collectors is they would incentivize them and say, okay, you get this certain amount And you can tell the people however much you want to inflate that. You can tell them they've got to pay even more. And the difference, you just pocket. 
I mean, so think about that. If you wanted to make $2 million, you can name your own salary. Hey, I'm going to make $2 million. That just means that I need to tell this person and that person to give me this much extra money. So that's what these tax collectors would do is they would just go around and they would say, hey, I, you know, I think you're probably, you know, it looks like you probably make, I don't know, 100000 How about you give me 50 of that right now, you know? So you could imagine how hated these guys are. But they were worth a ton of money. So they could just tell, I mean, if, if they were operated kind of like the mob. If you, if you disagreed or if you opposed them, these tax collectors would just pa- call on the muscle of Rome and the Roman military would step in and they would force you to pay. So these guys are hated. That's what, that's what Levi, that's what Matthew was. He was a tax collector. He's worth a ton of money, even though he got it through corrupt means. And shortly after, we don't know exactly when this happens, but shortly after he decides to follow Jesus, Jesus says, follow me. It says he got up and left everything. Shortly after that, he throws a party. He has the, it calls it a banquet. It's a big party. And notice who's present at the party. This is significant. It says that a large crowd of tax collectors and others were at the banquet. Now, who are these people? Who are these people that are there with them? I mean, if you think about these tax collectors, based on what we just learned, you would imagine that maybe in Jesus' day, all the wealthy people lived on a certain side of town. Maybe all the wealthy people in Jesus' day lived in a particular neighborhood. Maybe even they lived on the same street. You'd imagine if you were engaged in a corrupt practice like collecting taxes like Matthew was in that day and time, you'd imagine that maybe they would, they would protect themselves from the general population. You didn't just want to be walking down the street when you had just taken everything that somebody had made. So maybe you had some bodyguards. Maybe you had a walled property. You isolated yourself from other people. So you start thinking about that, and these tax collectors, this is probably a really tough world to access. But who had access to it? Levi did. Why? Because he was one of them. He had shared a profession with them. He might have even bought a house on the same street shortly after he started making all this money. He ran in the same social circles. If you think about it, this guy, Levi or Matthew, he's probably the only one of Jesus' followers who had access to this group of people. And then he does something genius. He throws a party and he invites them all over to this party. Now, another thing that's significant in this story is it says that when he decided to follow Jesus, it says that he left everything. And this is significant because when it says he left everything, what that's referring to is his way of life. He was involved in a corrupt business. He was cheating people. He was taken from them. So when he decides to follow Jesus, he leaves that. What that meant for him personally is that was at great financial cost. I mean, it cost him a lot of money to decide to follow Jesus. He gave up a very lucrative career path. And he did it because he concluded that a life of following Jesus is far greater than this life of sin. So even though this is going to cost me a ton of money, I'm going to choose to follow Jesus. So he leaves that behind. But what does he not leave behind? He doesn't leave behind the relationships. Because who shows up at his party? All his tax collector buddies. You would imagine that he had gone to them and he had said, hey guys, I'm not going to be at the tax booth anymore. I'm choosing a new career path. Hey guys, I've decided to follow Jesus. He's changing my life and I'm following him. You would imagine he had said, hey guys, there are certain activities I'm not going to be able to participate anymore. So he had communicated this with them. They knew this change was taking place, but he still had access. And so he goes, and because he cares about them, he doesn't cut off the relationship, but he wants to tell them about the one who is changing his life. So he invites them to a party. And this is, this is really genius. He doesn't invite them to the synagogue, 
the equivalent of the church. He doesn't say like, hey guys, come to the synagogue, Jesus is preaching, come hear a message. He, hey guys, come to my house for a party. They'd probably been over there a ton of times. So he just, hey, come hang out at my house at this party. So the, I think an application of this for you and I is, who are the people God's given us access to? Who are those people that just like Matthew, we might be the only ones who have access to them? I mean, maybe it's extended family. Maybe it's other parents on a youth sports team. Maybe it's in our company. Maybe it's our coworkers. Maybe it's the neighborhood that we live in. I don't know. Who are the people that God's given you access to? He strategically placed you so that you can be a messenger of love so that prayerfully they might come to know him. Who are those people in your life? And then taking a cue from Matthew, we actually created something to help us out with this. We actually, we, we kind of created something to try to help simplify and encourage you to just have a party, have some people over. So it's the end of the summer, and people are doing this. Labor Day is coming up, and so it's kind of a common time. So we created this thing. We're calling it a barbecue box. And the whole point of this box is to kind of help kind of simplify the process of having a party, having some people over for a meal. So you open this box up. You can get them outside on the patio. They're free. You can take them. You start here is the first thing, so follow the instructions, start there. It explains the purpose of the box. It's got some few conversation starters to kind of be helpful at a party. On the back, you keep going through the box. It's got this little uh, folded piece of paper inside here. It's got some meal ideas for the barbecue, some different things to include, you know, to kind of make it more fun, more festive. As you keep going through, you'll see that there's different recipes Actually, these recipes were um, given by two members of the church who are also chefs, so they're very good recipes. I didn't make these up. I didn't pull these out of some magazine, but these are by some local guys who are really good. Um, The options are there's a steak option. If you choose the steak option, if you like red meat, well, then guess what? There's a steak seasoning inside the box. We didn't buy this at Costco. This is actually their recipe, so it's really, really good. There's another one for a chicken. If you want chicken, if you don't want to do the steak, you can do the chicken. It's actually tandoori chicken, super good. Again, it's, this is their recipe. In preparation for this message, I decided I had to try both of these meals, so I did. It's some of the most fun I've ever had preparing for a message. The rest of staff, usually when I'm working on a message, I'm kind of secluded in my office and I don't talk to people that much. This week, hey, I was like, hey guys, you want to help me with the message and come eat some steak and chicken? They loved it too. Both meals are really good. Hey, if you decide, you know what, I want to have some friends over and we want steak and chicken, great. Do both. It doesn't matter. Do it. I mean, come on. It's just have some people over. People are doing it as it is. God has strategically placed you around people. How can you build those relationships? There are some other things in the box to just make the party fun and help along the way. We created a website, a page on our website, just seabreezechurch.com slash barbecue box. If you're like, hey, should I have music? Should I not have music? Well, great. Guess what? We provided a Spotify playlist. Like, how should I decorate for the party? We got decoration ideas. Should we play games? Should we not play games? We've got a lot of recommended games. Desserts. Should I have desserts? Should I not have dessert? There's a lot of recommended desserts. We've tried to do a lot of the work. We're not going to buy the meat for you, but we're going to do a lot to try to plan this. Because, hey, the summer's winding down. We, we just naturally do this in our culture. We just have people over. So, who are the people God's placed you around who don't know him yet? Do you even know if, you, if they know him yet? Who are those people that you could invite over? You could just say, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm getting some meat. I'm firing up the grill. Come over to my house for a meal. We're just going to hang out. Are they your neighbors? Is it extended family? Who are those people that God's placed you around? 
maybe you'll find out that they've really been wrestling with some questions of faith and they just need somebody to talk to. Maybe you'll find out that they're really close to making a decision and your investment in their life is one of the key things to help them make that decision. Maybe you won't talk about spiritual things at all and you'll just hang out. But that'll be a first step in the process of getting to know them so that prayerfully as the person God's put next to them, over time you might be able to share with them. Who knows? I have no idea what's going to happen through these things. But I mean, how much fun just having your neighbors over, having a party. See, as, as God's followers, the task of spreading the gospel, it's not limited to the people who are on stage. It's something he gave to all of us, all of us as individuals. He's included. He's saying, hey, invest your life in this work. This is the most meaningful, significant thing that you will ever do. Invest yourself in this. And he says, hey, when you go about it, it happens as you love people. Those of you who you've been impacted by my love, as you spread that love, you're the messengers of that love, that's what really starts to, sharp, sh- to soften a heart. That's the most effective way. It's not about, we're not looking to speed the process. We're looking at loving people, at spending time getting to know them so that we can tell them about the God who's changed us. Just like Levi, just like Matthew did it. So on your way out, grab a box. We've got tons of these. Make a list. Who are you going to invite? Go to the store, get the meat, plan a party. It's the end of the summer. It's a great opportunity. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the fact that you include us in this work of yours. I thank you that our lives are not limited to collecting paychecks or going through the motions or investing in things that don't really matter, but our lives can be given to a work that really has eternal implications, a work that can yield fruit for all of eternity. God, I thank you for the fact that you allow us to be involved in this. God, I pray that as we go through this series, I pray that we would really get a a fresh vision for how we can join you. God, I pray for these boxes. I pray that there would be a ton of chicken eaten, a ton of steak eaten. And God, I also pray that there would be people who have never heard about you or are close to entering into a relationship with you And as somebody next to them just loves them and looks to share your love, I pray that they would enter into those relationships. God, I thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.